James chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. And while you're opening them up, let me uh, start with this story and from my life. I have so few glorious moments that I find that it's uh, good to exploit them spiritually every once in a while. So I'd like to do that this morning. And um, actually, this involves our deacon of our, our chairman of our deacons, Paul Harrison. Paul Harrison and I, years ago, were out to their cabin. And, oh, you see the pain. You already hear the pain. It's a true story. Now you know it's true. And, uh, Paul, Paul is sometimes, I'll say it nicely, arrogant. And so, no, <laughs> I'm playing. So Paul says, you know, Pastor Tim, we had all these teens there. Let's have a little marksmanship contest. So he got his 22 rifle out. And he set up, I don't know, 50 yards away, a Maxwell House cup of, or a coffee can with a pink styrofoam thing sticking out of it. And he says, I'll go first. And he shoots and he hits it. I had shot a gun probably in 16 years. I used to shoot quite a bit. But I'm old, out of shape shooting-wise. I get up there by God's anointed power, hit that thing. So Paul, a little confused, said, let's back up a little bit. So we back up another 15 yards. He shoots and hits it. I shoot and hit it. So we back up again, and this time he's sweating. Me, I know this is a glorious moment that I'm going to preach about someday anyway, so it's going to work. So we back up another 15 yards, and he shoots and he hits. I shoot and I hit, and now we're all the way back to his cabin. What, 450 yards? No. I don't know what, maybe 75 yards away. We're all the way back to the cabin. He shoots and he misses. Gives me the gun, and I shoot, and I hit it. Now, in humility, I leapt around in exaltation <laughs> for everyone to hear while he kind of dragged himself into the cabin and sat down in the rocker. Now, I tell you that not for my own glory, although I am enjoying it at the moment, but I'm telling you that story to tell you this. That sometimes, friends, we've missed the mark. And sometimes we've got to recenter on what really is worthy to be at the center. Let me tell you again why James wrote the letter. It's a theme. Now listen, I want you to picture in your mind a string of pearls necklace. And each one of those lustrous pearls beautiful. And there's a string that, that goes right in the center of each one of them, binding them together in unity. That string of pearls in James it, the, the theme that goes right through them is maturity. This is why James wrote this letter. He was moving the early churches to maturity. Here's what maturity is. Ready? I've defined it throughout this series that we've called Faith That Lives. Here's what maturity is. It's the movement from double-mindedness, which is my effort to live in the world and my effort to live in Christ at the same time. I run after the world and I run after God. It's called adultery in the Bible. Or idolatry, but that double-mindedness, James is moving us from that to single-mindedness. And the power, friends, listen, the power to move from double-mindedness to single-mindedness is wisdom. Wisdom is a gift from God in order to allow us to be able to know what we believe and live out that knowledge and righteous living. Friends, that's single-mindedness and that's maturity. Knowing what you believe going deeper in your knowledge of God and that knowledge producing in us righteous living. This is why James wrote this letter. It's to move us toward a faith 
that will produce righteousness. Now, the central problem he's been addressing is that instead of pointing toward God, our spiritual compasses, we all have one. It's an onboard compass called our sin nature. Our spiritual compasses always want to point back to ourselves. We have to battle this and you will battle this until the day you are dead. And so again, this morning, we're going to see how this occurs in our lives. How is James moving this compass needle off of me Pastor Tim, which my aforementioned illustration didn't do a good job of, but onto God and other people in righteous living. How are we going to do that? Look what he does. Chapter 13, or chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. The first point, there's four points that I'm going to bring out of this passage, four verses or rather 13 through 17. First point is planning for certain. If you've got your bulletin outline, you might want to write that in. Planning for certain. The first century, friends, was a period of explosive commercial activity. In fact, where that commercial activity was, early churches were springing up. They were following the growth And especially in the area of Palestine, as you can see, probably on this map, you're going to get up here in a second. You see all the one right before you see all those churches that are springing up. This is explosive growth. James is writing to these churches. And now in the next slide, the next map, you're going to see all of this growth all around the Mediterranean Sea. All this commercialization and the churches are following suit. And so James is writing to this collection of churches all around the Mediterranean area. And he's telling them, you need to learn to plan the right way. And right now, right now you're not. You're planning for certain. In fact, often when cities were founded and their founders, did you know this? When their founders were looking for citizens to populate their cities, Jews were offered free citizenship. Why? Because where the Jews came, when the Jews came, money and trade followed and flourished. Even the early Roman cities knew this. So Jews were invited, Jews were wanted, Jews were given free citizenship. So James, friends, listen, James is not condemning in this verse These business practices, look at what it says again, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. He's not condemning profit margins. He's not condemning market analysis or making travel plans or time frames for growth. He's not condemning any of those. Those are uh, ancient and modern business practices that are still going on today. Friends, listen, every person in business whether you're a non-believer, whether you're a Jew or a Christian, every person would plan their business in this way. But now listen. Are you listening? That is exactly the problem. Just as unbelievers leave God out and they center on themselves These believers were doing the same thing. All these plans that were being made, all this hope for money that was being earned, all of these uh, these expectations, these dreams, 
Where was God? Their lives were being lived out on one plane, and that plane with this was this world. Friends, listen. Now interact with this. I always ask you to do that. Listen to this. Ask yourself this question or these questions. Have you ever seen Christians plan out their retirement in selfish terms? Oh, it's great. I, I'm finally going to be able to kick back and enjoy the fruit of my labor. Do you see your career? Now interact. Do you see your career? As a way to make money, to buy what you want. Is your money a gateway to independence? If I could get this much money, then we'll have financial freedom, financial independence. Is deep lingering prayer missing in your major investments in your life decisions? Friends, listen, we are all stewards and caretakers. Amen. We steward the time on this earth that God has given to us, the monies that we have, our talents and our gifts, as well as those things that we possess, those are given to us from God. Now, I can't I have to tell you, it's alarmingly surprising to see how many believers that I've encountered do not think this way. They really do look at things that they possess as things that they were able to make, things that they were able to acquire See, James is saying that to make plans and to make money without keeping God in the center, listen, is not only foolish, it's sin. And it begs us to ask the question of ourselves, is God really central in our lives? And we might occasionally think of Him. We might pray to Him uh, in the morning before we get going on our day, we might come to church once a week. We might worship him. But friends, is God really the center of your lives? See, not only had God been cut out of these lives that James is talking to, listen to how James describes them in verse 16. Would you look at verse 16 with me? It says, as it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. You see, the word boast can mean one of two things. You ready? Here it is. It can mean loud mouth, either in legitimate rejoicing. In other words, don't we sometimes boast in our God when God does things that bring himself glory and he does them through our lives? Do we not want to boast in those to other people? That's one way that this word is used. But the other way is loudmouthed in touting our own accomplishments. It's this meaning that James is talking about. These people were becoming braggers about what they had been able to do. But it's the latter meaning that James had in mind. And it's even more interesting when you understand what the word brag means. It comes from a root word meaning to wander about. In fact, the word brag was a word used for those who traveled around selling phony goods, snake oil men, or whatever that's called. That's what this word was for. Some in the early church were boasting of what they were going to achieve for themselves even before they had accomplished it. In short, what James says, it's arrogant presumption. And this is what leads James to write in verse 14. Look at it with me, if you will. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? 
You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Planning for certain was his first point, but secondly, uncertain planning. You know, years ago, our family was camping at, at the Hickory Run State Park. It's a great state park. And I got up early one morning to build a campfire. I wanted to get this thing going before our children woke up, before Denise came out of the uh, the, the camper. And as I sat by the fire, I was enjoying the morning stillness. It was so quiet. And my ears began to pick up this steady plunking sound. I looked over at the campground's water spigot and I saw that it had a slow drip. One after another, drip of drop of water began to fall away from that faucet and plunk into the puddle below. Steady, consistent, not hurriedly. And not slowly, as I sat there watching and listening, I began to ponder how similar to life this dripping faucet was. Friends, listen, life drips on. And it goes on and on without pause and without regard for our schedules. That morning, I re-evaluated my life. I paused and took stock and examined my life. And I, and I learned and I was reminded Just as it will be for you, there will be a time in my life here on earth when that last drop falls to the ground. When will that be? You want to hear the biblical answer to when will that last drip drop? Here it is, Acts 13. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. You see how profoundly different than these traveling businessmen in James. They were living out their purposes. They were living out their dreams. They were living out their desires. But David was serving God. David was living out God's purposes in the time that he lived. You know what that means in today's vernacular? That it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, God can give, get His purposes through your life right now. You know what else it means? It doesn't matter if you are what I did for months in Atlanta, Georgia, when I traveled around and cleaned out porta potties. And it doesn't matter what I do now as a senior pastor of a church, God will get His purposes lived out in my life. David served the Lord and he lived out God's purposes in the time that he lived. He had a death worth dying, Acts tells us, and it came from a life worth living. You see, living, serving God, serving God's purposes, friends, listen, it means that we live our lives intentionally around God's calling, around God's expectations, around God's desires, and around God's will. It's what it means to live out God's purposes. It means that each of us, this is a revolutionary thought, you ready? It means that each of us are missionaries. It means that each of us are God's ambassadors, which merely tell the king's words to other people. Each of us are his servants. Each of us are his witnesses. What it means to live with redemptive purpose. The jobs that you have are given to you by God for his purposes. Whether you want to hear this or not, the marriage you're in is a marriage God's given you for His purposes. 
The body you have, whether it's healthy or not healthy, that body has been given to you for God's purposes. And as we draw breath, God's purposes for us continue. Friends, when God's purposes are done in your life, friends, you will fall asleep. It's when we relegate God as one of the many important elements in our lives and not the preeminent one that we lose sight of this. James tells us that our lives are like, look what it says, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. See, the picture of mist was really particularly relevant to these Mediterranean seaports. Because in the Mediterranean, in the morning, oftentimes a mist blows onto land, and by mid-morning it dissipates. So James is writing in a way that these traveling businessmen can really understand. He's not trying to be morbid. Your mist is going to dissipate. He's not trying to be deathly. He's being realistic. See, the uncertainty of life, it's not cause for fear. It's not cause for inaction. Rather, it reminds us daily of our complete dependency on God. Friends, look up here for a moment. None of us, not one of us, knows when that last drop will fall. But when it does and when that mist fades away, friends, let me ask you, whose purposes will you have been living? Is the picture of your life off center? Is it out of focus? Is it time to adjust your life now? James moves us to do that. Number three, planning with humility. Planning with humility. You know what I do when I when I prepare a bride and a groom to be married? The day of that wedding, you have the bridesmaids that are making their way from the back down to the altar. And almost invariably, even though the groom is standing right here, and even though the groom at that part of the wedding is the center of the wedding, despite all of that, as a bridesmaid is coming down, oftentimes the case is, this is my moment. I haven't looked this good for years. I'm going to do my Queen of England wave. And they're looking all around. And here's the center of attention not even looked at. The groom doesn't even exist, so to speak. So I always instruct them, look at the groom. Eye contact with the groom as you're walking down. James says this, instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. You see, James is instructing us to recenter on the one who deserves our attention. Jesus, the Son of God, who alone is our Lord and Savior, because what happened was their eye had replaced their God and taken their vision off of off center stage. So James says, refocus, recenter on the one who directs your affairs with his sovereign rule, he who providentially cares for you. Friends, isn't it easy? Let's just be honest. Isn't it easy to get distracted? I mean, probably right now, I mean, the Word of God's living and active. It doesn't matter if I'm a good preacher or not. The Word of God's going to do what He wants. God wants the Word to do. So I'm, I'm guessing right now, for many of you, this is causing and provoking some thinking. I hope. And it's making you examine your life. Am I really centering on God? 
Or do I have God in the picture, but he's on the outside? You see, James tells us in chapter 4 that anytime God's in the picture, but not in the center and on the outside, friends, it's idolatry and it's adultery. And God doesn't like that. He's not satisfied. He's a jealous spirit. And so he opposes us and he comes against us, not because of his wrath, but because he wants to move our eyes back to him. This is what James has all been saying in the context. And so sometimes we hear a message like this, we realize, well, I've drifted again. It's so easy to drift. It's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to get consumed in the affairs of this world, our careers, our families, our our activities, our church, our schools. We used to live with constant reference to God, but now he's an occasional thought. Friends, listen to what James says. This phrase, if it is the Lord's will, it's found nowhere in the Old Testament. But it occurs several times in the New Testament. Did you know that the Puritans loved this phrase, if it is the Lord's will? And they filled their letters and their teachings with a Latin equivalent. We're going to say it together. It goes like this, Deo Valente. Everybody say that. Deo Valente. You just spoke Latin for God willing. Godly Methodists you regularly signed their letters with the initials DV. It even put the initials on placards and circulars about upcoming events. Friends, Deo Valente is the ever-present belief that our lives are in God's hands and He fills every moment with purpose, meaning, and direction. Deo Valente is profound submission to God. But God willing, that phrase can, like any other catchphrase, it could become trivialized, it could become legalized, and it become and it could be used thoughtlessly. What James wants is not that you and I utter God willing or if the Lord wills at every time we say anything. You could do that if you want, that's fine. What he's really after is that your heart orients and centers on God at every moment of your life so that it's filled with profound meaning and purpose. This is what James is after. He's taking these traveling businessmen. He's taking these people and women too. These people who were consumed with making plans and making money and ordering their affairs. But God wasn't in the center. And he's moving them in from double-mindedness to single-mindedness. It says, hey, your job is great, but it has no eternal purpose. What you do on your job for my will is what in, what puts eternal purpose in your career. But he goes on one more time. Verse 17, look what it says if you would. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. James says we need to change our plans. We need to change our planning. Friends, do you remember, some of you my age, maybe a little younger, are going to remember this, but do you remember ABC's The Wide World of Sports? Do you remember in the beginning? I used to watch just the beginning, and then usually I'd turn it off because I just love this scene. Remember that skier? You want to hear the rest of the story? The skier appeared in good form as he headed down the jump, but then for no apparent reason he tumbled. This is that long jump where you're flying, I don't know how many meters, but you're in the air for a long time. He tumbled head over heels off the side of the jump, bouncing off the supporting structure. What most of us don't know is this. 
That man later told in an interview he chose to fall rather than finish the jump. Why? The jump surface had become so fast that midway down he realized if he completed that jump, he would land on the level ground beyond the safe landing area, which could have been and most likely would have been fatal. Friends, to change one's course in midlife can be dramatic and sometimes a painful undertaking. But change is better than a fatal landing at the end. James says anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. He adds this strong encouragement. To do what he has just written, he has told them what is right, to, so to not do it, to fail to do this, to fail to put God back in the center of your life, to not do that is to sin. James undercuts any excuse. He, he, puts out, he puts out a fleece that says none of your excuses can hold water because if you fail to do what I just said, you're going to sin. And he says that sins of omission are as wrong as sins of commission. You know what a sin of omission is versus a sin of commission? It means not doing something that is right, something that we ought to do, is just as wrong as doing something that we ought not to do. Sins of omission are not doing what you know to be right, and commission is doing what you know is wrong. See, that standard shows what is right. God's standard of righteousness, that sin is missing, Paul Harrison, the mark. And that standard of righteousness is forfeited. That is what's, that's, that's what sin is. And the businessman or the, the person, the homemaker, the mother, the pastor, any of us who forfeit putting God at the center forfeits the quality of life that God desires to give. And friends, it's moral failure. Did you ever look at that as being moral failure? That's what James says it is. Let me close with this. 1744, King Louis XV had come to the throne. And he had acquired a sickness that threatened to cut his life short. And friends, this is a true story. France was in terror. The churches resounded with prayers and groans and prayers of the priests and the people as they sobbed their request for God's mercy for the king. This widespread tenderness and deep affection of Louis XV brought him the nickname Louis the Well-Beloved. But their love was not inspired by what he had done, but what they hoped he would do. For years, the nation had suffered under the cruel tyranny of the kings before him. And so they invested, all of France invested their hopes in Louis XV as the king that would bring them out of this harsh life. That was 1744. Thirty years later, he lay sick again, perhaps dying but this time, no prayers, no priests, no people filled the churches and sent up their supplications to the Lord on, on his behalf. No groaning, no sobbing could be heard in the churches of France. In fact, Louis the Well-Beloved had become the most hated man in France. True story. What had he done to become so hated? 
Friends, the truth is, Louis had done nothing. He had done nothing to bring about reform, nothing to change the way of his people's lives, and he was reviled for it. Friends, your faucet's dripping. My faucet is dripping. And there will be a day when that last drop falls to the ground. It's reality. Might as well face it. And are you going to be like David, who in his lifetime served God's purposes, centered his life on God, didn't have God in the periphery, had God in the center of his life, and the moment he was done serving God's purposes, he fell asleep. Can you imagine what he woke to? Face of our Savior. Friends, I want to encourage you to take stock of your lives and look and see what it is you're centering on. Because the world whispers and pulls us so insidiously, we don't even know we're gone until somebody brings us back. Is God doing that this morning? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for James. Father, thank you for the power of your living and active word, Lord, that will accomplish its work. Lord, I want to pray for my friends here in this sanctuary. Lord, there may be some this morning that have never put God in their lives. Or maybe today is the day of their salvation. Lord, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, who have bent their knee to you in faith, but Lord, the world has pulled them. And they have forgotten your purposes in their lives. They've forgotten that they are missionaries and ambassadors and witnesses and servants. And yes, they have you in their lives, but not at the very core. Lord, you're not settled with that. You're not satisfied with that. You are the Lord and Savior. And you demand all of who we are. And you give us the grace in order to give it to you. Lord, I pray for them. I pray for myself. Lord, that when that last drip drops away from our faucet of our lives, God, that we would fall asleep having been living your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Would those who are serving communion make their way down to the front? Can I tell you something briefly? I know I'm probably over. I try not to look at my clock because it makes me nervous. I feel guilty. So I'm not going to look at it. (laughs) But just bear with me for a minute. Can I tell you something about Corinthians really briefly? Paul, I'm going to read to you out of Corinthians. And uh, Corinth was a seaport. There was a lot of trade there. They had almost 250,000 slaves. They had priests and priestesses and pagan temples and all sorts of debauchery going on. And all of these people were coming to know Christ because the church was alive. But then all these pockets of people came into the church and they had slaves and they had rich people and they had former homosexuals and they had former drunkards and they're all pocketing up in all of these cliques and schisms. So Paul writes a letter to move that church towards maturity. And you know what? They would have love feasts. 
They called them agape feasts, and they would have everybody bring food, and the rich would bring extra food to share with the poor, but the rich, when they would get there, they got to the point where the rich shared their food with the other rich, while the poor over in the corner didn't have any food, and nobody was sharing food with them. And they had people that were former homosexuals and nobody wanted to mingle with them because they used to live in that kind of a life. And so you had all these pockets. And Paul says, listen, at the end of your love feast, you're going to celebrate communion. And you better figure out what God meant when he instituted this ordinance because you're not living it. And there may be sickness coming to some and there may be death to others. You may fall asleep, not the way David did, but the way you're being disciplined by the Lord Because you're not taking into account the body of Christ. Friends, I want to encourage you. I don't know what your background is in the church. I don't know what your view of everybody else in this church is. But they are your brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ died for all of us. And if there is a schism, if there is a break, if there is a fracture in your relationship of somebody in this room or somebody in this church, and you have not yet tried to make amends, can I encourage you? Abstain from the Lord's Supper. Let that motivate you to restore your fellowship and come back and celebrate with us. This table is open to all. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we encourage you to look upon this as an ordinance in the way that it points us towards what Christ has done on the cross for us. I'm going to read that to you in a moment. Here's what Paul says in that book of Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Friends, remember the Lord. Take a few moments and remember Jesus Christ and what he has done. Remember that he died. Remember that his stripes have healed you. Remember that the blood of Jesus has taken your sins God has taken your sins and put them on to Jesus and taken Jesus' favor and righteousness and put it on to you. It's the great exchange. And remember this, when he yelled out, it is finished, that was a banker's term that they stamped on the bottom of a deed that said you paid your mortgage in full. You no longer are under penalty for your sin. Amen? Can you remember that, Jesus, as this bread is being brought to you? Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Father, for communion, it's constantly a sober celebration. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we're no longer underneath the penalty, the weight and the burden and the misery and the shame of our sin. But God, you have freely taken it. You have so loved the world, Father, that you have sent your son. And he is the atoning, the buyback relationship for us. God, thank you that you have bought us back from slavery to sin and set us free to righteousness. God, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.